If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The 13th of November, 1002, saw the St Brice's Day Massacre, in which Danes living in England were killed, apparently on the orders of King Ethelred. But the extent of the violence and the motivation behind it continues to be much debated by historians. Dr Benjamin Saville of Trinity College Dublin has recently published an article exploring whether the massacre may have been planned specifically for the feast day of St Bryce. He spoke to our content director David Musgrove to outline his new theory. Ben, thank you for joining us. Can you give us a sense of the bare bones of the St. Bryce's Day massacre story? What what happened? Um, yes, so the 10th century is really the century in which England is made as a kingdom. Um, you're seeing a centralised state being created very gradually over that century. And the creation of that state involves one particular kingdom from within it, uh, the West Saxon kingdom, which is in the, sort of the southwest of England. Um, initially kind of driving out the Vikings um, who have sort of invaded over the previous century, but then also in the process of that, you might call it kind of unifying uh, the kingdom by bringing together the other disparate parts and bringing it into a centralised whole. Now, what really happens once we get to the late 10th century is the Vikings come back. Um, from really the 980s, 990s, we're seeing a kind of renewal of warfare, and particularly during the reign of Ethelred II, um, let's say the state under pressure. Um, What happens in 1002 is about a year after there has been a truce with the Vikings, with the Danes in England, um, we see on the 13th of November, 1002, um, it's recorded in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that there is what it calls um, a killing, a slaying of all the Danes who are in the kingdom at that time. And as typically is the case, it's uh, we just get that sort of one or two little lines in the Chronicle um, is kind of what we have to work with initially. And it's been kind of controversial what that means in terms of killing all the Danes in the kingdom, because the kingdom's at peace. Um, Does it literally mean everyone or does it mean small groups in towns? Um, The thinking across the last few decades is we're perhaps not looking at a kind of total genocide, but a um, perhaps kind of small groups of settlers within towns, perhaps people who are sort of were with the Danish army, but are now being perhaps mercenaries or former mercenaries um, who were killed on that day. And the idea is is that what the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us is that there's a fear that there's a conspiracy. Uh, There's a conspiracy of some kind to overthrow the king, overthrow his councillors. And as tends to happen, this is kind of played out in some ways in xenophobic terms. So there's an idea in which 
we're going to sort of, it's the Danes who are plotting this. So on one particular day, I suppose as a surprise, there are these massacres taking place across the country. I mean, it, it's a very sort of striking incident because even if we're not talking about sort of everyone f- from Denmark or Danish descent being killed, the kind of the, the act of organising something like this is quite striking. It shows, particularly for people who work on the English kingdom at this time, who are kind of very interested in its sort of centralised state, centralised bureaucracy, it shows that kind of quick on the spot political action can happen. I mean, this is quite a dramatic event and it's quite unprecedented. I mean, this is important to say is we don't see things like this elsewhere in this period by a long shot. This is quite an unusual event and it sticks out in the Chronicle because it's quite strange. Now, we do have some other evidence that shows this isn't just one sort of scribe writing away. Uh, getting carried away with things. Uh, There's a charter from a couple of years later, so a kind of a legal document for a church from near 1004 for Oxford, uh, which describes what looks like this event in Oxford. Uh, The king is granting, um, I think, lands to a church, St. Frideswides in Oxford, and is saying it is well known that a couple of years ago um, an order went out to kind of drive the Danes out of the country. Um, And he says that in this town in Oxford, um, some Danes kind of fled to the church for sanctuary. And in the process, the townspeople, um, who were the people who seemed to be given the job of kind of hunting them down and killing them, uh, they burned down the church as a way of um, sort of driving them out from that sanctuary. And so the, the charter mentions this because they're sort of, they're rebuilding the church, as it were. So they need to kind of donate to it again. So that kind of gives us proof that something like this did happen. And it gives a kind of local snapshot of what was going on. And then a third set of evidence that's more recent is that there are kind of bodies found from this period that show kind of mass, uh, probably kind of public execution and burial of um, sort of Danish men. Uh, And in particular, in a way that just works very nicely, is um, one of these finds was from within Oxford. So in a kind of what seems to be a sort of a former sort of pagan site outside the town, uh, they were discovered um, when people do some building works in Oxford College, uh, they discovered beneath the ground sort of all these kind of what seems to be sort of ritually executed groups of men. And that seems to be related to the thing we read before about this thing happening in Oxford with people being chased down and burnt out of the church and then killed. And that seems as well to relate to um, this bigger issue that there was this major massacre taking place on this day. Now, I mean, some of the work on this, it's important to bear in mind that this happens during the reign of Athered the Unready, uh, who's king from 978 to 1016. And traditionally, Ethelred's reign, Ethelred has been seen as kind of hapless, that he's the kind of guy who sort of loses the great gains of the English kingdom as it's created in the 10th century. Um, and particularly since the 1970s, 1980s, um, through the walk of uh, Simon Keynes and Pauline Stafford, more recently Levi Roach, um, that idea has come under a lot of revision. Um, Ethelred is seen as kind of 
reasonably strong king who does manage to hold on for, for decades. Um, and so these things that are traditionally read as sort of signs of his tyranny or sort of bad decision-making are increasingly read as sort of perhaps quite clever tactical moves. Um, and certainly this massacre, once we say we get beyond the normal conquest, so beyond 1066, there's a big drive within Norman historical writing to paint this massacre as one of the sort of the national sins of the English. There's an idea of kind of, of sin as related to causation. So the reason why the Normans are justified in conquering the country and the reason why the English do lose it, why God lets them lose it, is because they have become sort of weighed down by sin. And there are sort of various things which sort of count towards this. Um, sort of, you know, married clerics, uh, various levels of kind of sort of sex and violence. And certainly in terms of the violence, um, this enters the kind of the English historical tradition, as Simon Keynes calls it, of the sins of the late Anglo-Saxon state, the, the way in which it kind of fallen into depravity. And really, a, lo a lot of the sort of revisionist work on this um, over the past few decades has said, well, perhaps this is a sort of strategic killing of conspirators or potential conspirators. It's only in that later tradition it becomes seen as sort of part of the depravity of the age. And from there, it's kind of entered sort of early modern and modern historical writing. It's one of the big things you learn about if you're doing a sort of a module on Anglo-Saxon studies at university. It's one of the sort of key things in the master narrative. Um, and so there's been a degree to which over recent years people have been a bit reticent to perhaps call it a, uh, a massacre per se. But I suppose what we have to think about it is it can be read either way. And clearly this, this is a kind of exceptional and very bloody and very strange act. And the fact this one thing that happens on one day sticks out in our sources and is remembered decades later and then is remembered kind of centuries later means that we do kind of have to take it seriously as something that's very violent and something very problematic. And by problematic, I mean there is surely a consciousness at the time that this needs to be handled and communicated in such a way that it will not be read as a massacre, that it will be read as sort of legitimate state violence. And I suppose my anger with this, with this article is saying that we all know it's kind of called the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, thinking about, okay, less arguing about the massacre side, but thinking about the St. Bryce's element. Because the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says this happened on the feast of St. Brictius, St. Bryce, um, because there was a conspiracy to overthrow the king and his counsellors. And so what I'm partly thinking of with this is, did it happen on that day for a reason? Is that partly how this plays out? And just, uh, I just want to drill into this idea of Danes and Danishness a bit, if we can, as well. So, as as you as you described in your introduction, so this is all about the West Saxon kingdom, 
kind of developing into the English kingdom and you take it back to King Alfred the Great and his battles mm-hmm. against the Vikings in the uh, in the ninth century and then uh, that follows through to to Athelstan and uh, and his attempts to sort of unify Britain perhaps in in the in the in the 10th century and then on we go to Athelred this 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 king who as you've described has been sort of subject to a bit of a reassessment recently mm-hmm. but but what what's the so there's been antagonism towards Scandinavian incomers who have come as uh as as invaders uh, in part but also in settlers during this period yeah. so what what how can we understand what we mean by Danes and uh, and and Danishness in the context of England in the 10th and early 11th century so i mean the the, the initial kind of viking age sort of during and before the age of Alfred and so forth, um, there's a large amount of settlement in the east of the country. So what we would call the Danelaw, I guess. You can imagine drawing a diagonal line across England and the sort of the, the east and northeast um, would be, in many ways, what's the sort of... Uh, it's arguable the degree to which it's taking place, but in many ways becomes kind of more culturally Scandinavian as a result of that settlement. Um, and you still see that today. You see kind of, you know, Danish name elements in roads in Norwich, things like that. Um, so certainly there will be, once we're into a sort of unified kingdom, particularly I think in the, in the east of the country, there will be people who claim Danish descent, um, perhaps have a kind of degree of kind of Viking Danish identity. It's very difficult for us to tell, given the sources, what that means and how much that is played out. And I think perhaps when people kind of used to read about this massacre, they imagined that, you know, it's sort of scary kind of blood guilt genocide on that level, that perhaps anyone who is in any way sort of seen as kind of Danish or Scandinavian... um, might be being killed in this sense. Um, but of course, there are... With these wars that are happening in what we call this kind of second Viking age in the late 10th century, there will be Danish mercenaries within England. Um, there will be Danish elements in the English court. Um, so there will also be people in the country, it seems, who are sort of I suppose, um, kind of like more obviously from Denmark and kind of related to the politics over there and kind of perhaps associated in some people's imagination with the most recent wave of invasions who were probably quite distinct from, say, the the sort of whatever generation later uh, settled communities within the East. And I think the reading of Simon Keynes has, which which I think... Uh, seems to be the right way of going about it, is that it's probably reasonably people who are kind of Danes in that sense, in the latter sense, who are sort of um, in some ways associated with these invading armies and the court um, in Denmark. I, um, I don't know how we necessarily prove that <laughs> um but um it, it certainly seems more it, if there's this idea that there's a conspiracy going on and there's only been a truce about a year before 
and there's only a degree to which a kind of massacre like this can be played out, it seems more likely that it's going to be that kind of smaller, more obvious group of people who are associated with the invading army. Okay, so so Ethelred's reign was basically it was it was pockmarked by these these Viking, these new Viking uh, invasions, wasn't it? So basically, what you're saying is that uh, that if if there was any sort of proclamation by him to say we need to get rid of the Danes, that he would be he would have been referring to the new Danes, the people who had arrived in his reign and were causing him such problems in terms of of security and defence in his realm. And and, and sorry, I, I should say so Ethelred. Uh, the unready, as, as we know him, Ethelred uh, uh, unraid. Uh, it means ill-advised, not not unready, doesn't it? So, just just want to give us a little bit of a sense about Ethelred uh, and his character, as we understand it, and, and the recent uh, sort of reassessments of, of who he was and what was he was about. Yeah, I mean, so the the key place to go for this would be uh, Levi Roach's uh, very good book with Yale University Press that came out a few years ago, um, and in some ways, perhaps it, it's not so recent that trend it's kind of been going since the 1970s 1980s um and it seems i the issue with ethelred is he is the son of king edgar who is sort of the, the big great king of the 10th century um his brother is king before him but is murdered in a sort of factional dispute which brings ethelred to power as a child so he kind of enters the scene in a slightly inauspicious way. Um, there's a period where he's a child king, and then he kind of comes into his own from the 980s. Um, kind of gets in a bit of trouble with the church for kind of taking some of their lands and handing them out to his mates. Um, but then it seems the sort of, the rain takes on a... a a new character from the 990s where um, partly, I suppose, as a result of these Viking attacks starting again, again, people think of causation in the the real and physical political world uh, as related to kind of sin as well. So perhaps the sins of Athered's early reign, perhaps the sins of how he came to power, um, there's almost a sort of cosmological element that the, the sins of the king and the people around him and of the English people um, need to be restituted um, in order to kind of win this fight against the Vikings. And so the, the, I guess the big two kind of strands in revision over the past sort of 40-odd years have been to emphasise that Athered isn't on a sort of endless kind of hapless downward path of eventually losing the kingdom because he's king for a very long time. Um, and the state seems to be sort of very sort of well-managed and very centralised during that time. Um, but it's also been, and this is in some ways the, the more interesting strand in the last decade or so, has been to emphasise the degree to which um, the idea of religion and reform and I guess almost something kind of theocratic about the state really comes to play from the 990s. So Ethered is what we might call a kind of penitential king. So there's this idea in which he publicly admits uh, and arguably kind of does penance for his own personal sins. Um, he is surrounded by bishops and monks, are kind of his key advisors. 
and this idea in which the idea of kind of making the Kingdom of England as we get closer to the year 1000 and kind of Christ's millennium, kind of making it a, a state of kind of religious renewal. Make, I guess the, the idea of almost the, the state as a church, as this sort of, um, the idea of kind of the English, uh, not just as a kingdom, but as kind of God's people, um, and sort of creating, I suppose in many ways, a sort of a, a kind of a theocratic kingdom that will look good in God's eyes, that will kind of help drive out the Vikings and sort of get back on this sort of right path that was perceived to be the case in the 10th century. Um, it must be said, I'll add as well, that very recently, I guess there has been a re-revisionism as well. Um, particularly work of Katie Cubitt has shown that actually from the 990s, there are dissenting voices. So perhaps the, the revisionism has gone too far in that it's made Etheridge look kind of, he's gone from being unready to flawless, <laughs> or perhaps not flawless, but a, a carefully calculating guy who's got his fingers on all the right buttons. Katie Cubitt has shown that there is kind of dissent in the kingdom from the 990s onwards. And in many ways, that's a good way of placing the massacre in context as well, because there is paranoia at the court as well. There is a sense in which people might be plotting, things might be going wrong. And we see people who are driven into exile or are forced out of court during this period as well. Um, that kind of not all is okay within the kingdom as well. That this, this drive towards a sort of hyper-religious, hyper-kind of reform-based state um, is in many ways a, a, a symptom of weakness as well as a exercise in strength. Okay. So poor old Efferet, he thought he was going to lose the unready moniker. And now it's, uh, it's, uh, there's the, the, uh, the backlash has started already. But before we get on to this, this, this really interesting and important religious question, I just want to um, clarify one point with you as, as best we can. I know this is super difficult. So you said that there's a sort of question mark over whether we should refer to this event as a massacre. Um, that's how it's you know traditionally known. And that's, I guess, why people find it interesting because massacre is a very emotive, evocative word. But can we in any way say how big an event this was? I mean, you mentioned the, the, the bones in Oxford and, and, and the links. Have we got any idea about whether this was actually a widespread bloodletting event or whether it, it, it was fairly localised and specific? Um, well, it depends on what you're reading. So again, if you're if you're looking at the later sources uh, coming from the Normans and the Anglo-Normans, once you get later into the 11th century, uh, this is kind of this is depicted on kind of hyper bloody, sort of as dramatic as possible terms, with sort of babies being snatched and kind of thrown out of windows and stuff, and it's kind of happening all across the nation. And the King of Denmark himself. The idea is it's what drives him to sort of invade again because it kind of members of his family get killed in this as well. Um, really, I mean, our, our evidence for it is a really concrete evidence for it is um, just what we see in Oxford. 
But I suppose the point to make is the fact that this gets its own big entry in the Chronicle, um, which is pretty laconic most of the time, um, signifies that this is a serious event. And at least in the Chronicle, they phrase it as something that applies to the kingdom at large. Um, and at least I think in the, the Oxford Charter, it said it's very well known that this thing happened in the kingdom at large, that this is at least treated as a kingdom-wide national event. And I guess that's the point that I find more important rather than saying, is it mass or is it not? Because that's, uh, I mean, it's obviously subjective and maybe you get into slightly dodgy territory by down-talking massacres. Um, mm -hmm. I think what's more important is that this clearly plays a significant role in public memory. That whether it's, whatever size it is, it is uh, perceived as significant. And in many ways, that, that's the sort of the key point to run with. Got it, got it. And for any listeners who, who, uh, who are wondering uh, about the, the, this uh, Anglo-Saxon chronicle that we've referenced, um, uh, listen back to the History Extra archive for a, a chat I did with Pauline Stafford about that uh, last year for, for chapter and verse on that topic. Um, so, so look, we've, we've, we've covered the word massacre uh, and we've covered the context of this event. We haven't really talked about St. Bryce and his day, mm. so we need to bring him in to fully understand this topic. So who was St. Bryce, St. Bricteus, um, uh, and uh, what, what do we know about his day? Well, I mean, so that's the side of it that's tended to get less attention. Um, so St. I mean, Bryce, I suppose, is, is the anglicised version. St. Bryce is Bishop Bricteus, who is the successor to St. Martin of Tours. And St. Martin of Tours is one of the sort of the key super saints of the sort of the Gallic, the French tradition. Um, so what's the, what's the period here when, when well, those so, guys operate? Yeah, so he dies, uh, Martin dies in 397. Um, so we're kind of in very late Roman period. And Bryce is a funny one because he is his kind of unwanted unloved successor. Um, we know about him from a historian called Gregory of Tours, who's writing about 150, 200 years later. And um, Gregory tells us that, um, you know, even, even Martin doesn't like Bryce. Um, and Martin, Bryce is when he's kind of Martin's kind of deacon, his kind of under-cleric in the bishopric of Tours. Uh, he's kind of always uh, chatting back and stuff, and he's sort of a, a not a perfect uh, member of his clergy. And it seems that sort of Martin actually, um, Martin seems to make him his successor as a curse, almost as a punishment. He will become the bishop after him um, because he knows that he'll face kind of great tribulations. And um, what happens in the way Gregory Tour tells it is that sort of St. Bryce, he holds on to the bishopric. Uh, this is Tour in the centre of France for about 33 years during the late Roman Empire. Um, he's very unpopular. Uh, he's kind of generally sort of disliked by his population and seen as an unworthy successor. And... 
at some point after he's been bishop for 33 years, um, he's kind of, he's accused, I think, of, of impregnating a woman. And so he has to kind of face a kind of ordeal where he goes to St. Martin's tomb, sort of carrying coals, and the coals miraculously don't burn him to kind of prove his innocence. Um, and he is nevertheless, even though he's kind of proven by St. Martin uh, to not have committed this sin, he is nevertheless driven out from Tor. And Gregory of Tor tells it, he says that there is a conspiracy against him by the people within the population uh, to get rid of their just leader who's placed there by God. And they drive him out and he does penance. Um, and after seven years, he kind of triumphantly returns and his sort of usurpers are out of the way and he takes power again. And he's kind of weird as a saint because saints are usually sort of consistently holy throughout their lives. There aren't real problems. Uh, kind of Bryce, he... <laughs> Uh, he's kind of, Gregory sort of paints him as sort of very problematic, but sort of who pulls it together at the last minute through this penance and is put in his rightful place by God. The way Gregory tells it, he he definitely, he, he thinks of the population of Tor as more problematic than Bryce because they're going up against kind of God's leader, against the sort of anointed. Um, but Bryce himself doesn't get too good a write-up now, what's interesting is that Gregory is writing that sort of within a historical work. That chapter where he's writing about that gets um, over the centuries, um, it gets taken out of that historical text and made into a saint's life, which doesn't have an author. And as a saint's life, I guess the story itself doesn't change. But it changes the nature of the story because you actually have a very peculiar saint, a saint who is a political leader, who is sinful in his youth, who is faced by conspiracy by his people, and who does penance to make a comeback and sort of take back control. Um, and I suppose what's funny about St. Bryce is that he's never one of the sort of big super saints, which is why most of us haven't heard of him. But he is, by the sort of 9th, 10th century, recognised across most of Europe um, because his name has a saint's day, which is on the 13th of November, which is two days after St. Martin on the 11th of November. And it seems that he just has that day there two days later because of his association of Martin. So he's kind of He's back, back, backed up by the Martinian tradition. But it means that you have this funny situation where someone who's actually quite a peculiar saint is nevertheless universally recognised on that particular day across much of Europe. But on that particular day, his name will come up in the liturgy. His name will... Um, be recited when people recite those saints' lives. Um, people will date things to that day. So this quite peculiar saint, uh, in many ways, kind of enters uh, 
general public consciousness. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. This is about memory, but it's also about action on the day. Because Anglo-Saxon England is very centralised, very well organised, unusually so for this period. Um, but it doesn't have a, like a Gestapo or anything. And I think often when people read about this, they imagine kind of secret police going out in the night to sort of kill these people. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. So it, it does seem like a pretty random sort of chap to be recognised and remembered in 10th and 11th century England. But as, as you say, there's the, the, he, he features in the liturgy. Actually, perhaps we should just, just you've used the word liturgy. What does, what does that mean? Uh, the liturgy is um, essentially the, the text of church performances on any given day. So uh, the saints whose names are read out... Um, the saints whose names are invoked in services and uh, the saints whose lives will be read out within church on any particular day. Um, and it's important to realise that, that that's a pervasive part of political life as well, that people will be... We know that sort of... When we talk about Athelred and his government and his councillors, uh, we're talking about people who are... Many of them are bishops, many of them are monks... And when they get together to meet, they will have mass. They love mass, get together, have a big service and invoke the intercession of the saints who are relevant to that particular day. So it's liturgy is a way in which I suppose the the Christian past bleeds into the, the political present through the invocation of these stories, through these names every day across this cycle every year. And and so the annual calendar is peppered with these days, isn't it? There's there's you know that you can't go too far in in a month without coming across a saint's day. Yeah, and what's important about that is once we're getting into this period um 9th 10th century that is much more concrete than it used to be. So we know from the very very earliest church, the age of the Roman Empire and the martyrs um, people celebrate the anniversary of saints' days, usually the day in which they died, sometimes the day in which they're buried. Um, but there are local traditions everywhere which are very different and they often kind of contradict themselves. It's sort of very messy. What's happening once you're getting into really the 8th, 9th, 10th century is that the 
the sort of the physical books people will have that says whose day is on which day um, begin to become more standardized. So there will be a more kind of general kind of consensus and sort of public knowledge of whose day that is. Um, so it kind of increasingly, I suppose, it, it becomes unavoidable that it means whatever you do on any particular day will potentially be in some ways influenced um, both by, I suppose, the historical memory and the stories about that saint, but potentially also their intercession. Because these saints, it's not just kind of flowery memorialization. The saints have power after death. Uh, and in the liturgy, you kind of invoke their names to kind of intercede with you, with God. So it also means potentially what happens on any given day, uh, the saint has a role to play in it as well. Right. So what you're arguing in your article, as I understand it, is that this this act of political theatre violence that occurred on St Bryce's Day on the 13th of November um, was, was potentially deliberately chosen to happen on that day because Ethelred or Ethelred's advisors wished to draw some sort of parallel between the king, King Ethelred, in the, in the 10th, 11th century and this uh, rather enigmatic, slightly low-level saint uh, from 600, 700 years previously. Yeah, so as we said before, we're, we're getting this movement really from the 990s in England where there is a much bigger emphasis on the role of religion, the role of um, religious reform, and also increasingly the cult of saints within political life as a way of kind of shoring up the state, giving it an identity, and winning God's favour. Um, and actually, there are ways in which um, Athelred's own career and kind of where he's at by the year 1002, at least as it's understood by contemporary scholarship, um, has some parallels with the story of St. Bryce as it would have been understood by that same period. And it's important to say it because it, those parallels work with St. Bryce, but not really with any other saints because St. Bryce is so weird. Um, so one big thing with Ethered's reign is that he has this kind of mid-career um, his kind of early years of his career, he's sort of getting in a bit of trouble with the church, maybe by sort of giving all their stuff away. Um, then the Viking raids start. So they say, well, that was probably as a result of that. So there's a kind of shoring up of the kingdom and the shoring up of that religious image, which involves um, sort of doing penance um, within that period. Now, that idea of a sort of a wayward youth and then a kind of mid-career restitution um, doesn't really have any parallels in the sort of conventional lives of the saints, but it's exactly what we see um, with St. Brictius. And actually, I mean, it's, it's possible as well that um, in 1002, Athelred is 33 years old, which is supposed to be Christ's age when he dies, um, which is also the year in the Episcopate of Brictius that he has this kind of midlife turnaround. So this idea of a kind of uh, a bad boy come good um, is quite unusual within the cult of the saints. 
but it is particularly a feature of the life of Brictius. Um, something else is the issue of kind of succession and fallen standards. So um, Brictius, Bryce's big problem is that St. Martin, the guy just before him, is like the best French saint ever. Um, and he's sort of a quite bit of a sort of a, a disappointing follow-up and things aren't going so well in tour um, once he takes power. Um, and actually, you're seeing a similar thing with Ethelred. The The big problem for him is that his, his father, Edgar, is kind of such a kind of key heroic figure uh, in the English kingdom, and particularly within the kind of reform of its church, that a lot of sort of Ethelred's image problems are based on his you know, being a, a great man's lesser son in terms of that succession. Uh, his succession's also troubled, as we said. He comes; he only comes to power because his um, his brother is killed. So there's a kind of there's a dark element to that there that everyone is very conscious of. Um, and it's also the case that a lot of the the big religious figures of Edgar's reign and of Ethelred's youth are now kind of dying out. So someone like Ethelwald of Winchester, who's the big kind of church reformer and is seen as a saint in the mid-10th century. Uh, he dies in 984. And there seems to be a consciousness again of perhaps a, a golden age that's gone and a troubled succession to that. Um, so it's in this period um, that actually Athelwald and Edward, who is the murdered brother, are culted as saints as well. And so just as kind of Brictius Bryce has this problem where he is seen as a sort of inferior um, successor to Martin, and that's kind of weighing him down with the population. There seems to be a similar thing going on with Athelred's image in his relation to Edgar and his relations to, say, sort of St. Ethelwald and St. Edward, his brother. Um, and I guess the other thing as well, I mean, that's two things there, but the third is this issue that's so big in the scholarship now of penitential kingship. Um, that from the 990s, Athelred um, very much kind of draws his power from playing up the issue that he is a penitent, and he is a man doing penance. And this isn't a kind of weakness, but it's a sign of which he's sort of fully giving himself to kind of entrusting his kingdom into God's hands as someone who admits his sins. There are no kind of saints or very, very few saints who are actually related to the idea of penance. Penance has become a key part of political discourse, but penitential saints are actually quite hard to find because normally they don't have anything to do penance for because they are saints doing very well. And actually this idea of Brictius as someone who is a political leader who takes back control by doing penance uh, is absolutely unique within the canon of saints. And I suppose what we have to think about here is when the, uh, the councillors of Ethelred, all these monks and bishops, and also himself, are getting together, let's say in the summer or autumn of 1002, hearing about this conspiracy and saying, okay, we need a date to enact this, um, they are looking at their liturgical calendars. They are sort of opening up the pages and going down the list and finding a day that's appropriate. 
And all these dates, dates have kind of saints on them. Now, bridges, for the reasons we've just been saying, would stand out as particularly appropriate in that sense, because he is someone who is a penitential leader, who has made good, who is threatened by conspiracy and is overcoming conspiracy um, by doing penance and winning God's favour. So on his own terms there, he stands out very well. But also what's important to remember is that the liturgical calendar, as it becomes universal, and as people think of days as related to the saints, is also full of danger if you're doing something like a massacre, because most saints' days are named after martyrs. And the martyrs are innocent minorities killed by the state during the Roman Empire, by tyrannical rulers. So if you kind of time a massacre like this to a day named after one of these people <laughs> killed um, by the state, by a tyrannical ruler, as a member of a minority, um, this is very bad kind of PR, put it like that. And it's, it's inauspicious as well in terms of kind of getting the saints into session with helping with this kind of political action. So actually the Brixis himself stands out as unusually apt. And I think this is the striking thing that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle doesn't just say whatever. It doesn't call it the, the Ides of November would be the sort of the name for this in the Roman calendar. It specifically says that this was done on the day of Brictius. Brictius is mass day um, because there was a conspiracy to overthrow the king and his kingdom. And I think given how absolutely committed to religious practice, to reform, to the cult of saints, Atharad and his advisors are by the 990s, by the first decade of the century, that it is not a coincidence that they choose this particular day to kind of frame this sort of very problematic uh, political action that they're undertaking. What happens after this? So you've talked about how um, uh, kind of the event is is maligned in uh, in later um, analyses in the Anglo-Norman period. So once once things have uh, have settled down 50, 60 years after the fact, well, longer. Um, but uh, in the immediate aftermath, does is is there a backlash to it? Is is Ethelred um, accused of being completely sacrilegious by having this act committed uh, on, on 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 the day of a saint. I mean, he couldn't have really got away with it, could he? Because as you said, there was there's a, a, any day he did it was probably going to be linked to a saint in, in some way or other. So what, what was the aftermath? Well, not necessarily in, in the sense that there are days which are not universally recognised as saints' lives. So that's why it's interesting as well, that they could have just chosen a neutral day. That the, I guess, having a saint for every day has a kind of danger to it, but there are also possibilities. And the importance of possibilities is it allows you to frame people's interpretation. Now, this is about memory, but it's also about action on the day. Because Anglo-Saxon England is very centralised, very well organised, unusually so for this period. Um, but it doesn't have a, like a Gestapo or anything. And I think often when people read about this, they imagine kind of secret police going out in the night to sort of kill these people. It involves people getting involved on the ground. And the, the Oxford Charter tells us that it's the people of the city who went to do this killing. Um, the, 
enforcement of government needs to happen by pulling in local communities. So what it means, you need to justify it to the people doing it on the day. And you also need to frame it in such a way that when that Saints Day comes back every year again and again and again, and people remember it, that you frame and kind of control what that memory is. And I think that's a key part of it because in, in these annals, which are meant for later reading, which are meant for posterity, and in fact, the annals for the year 1002 might not be written till about the 1020s, perhaps. Um, you need to make this not look like violence. Now, I know that sounds silly because it is violence. We talked about, is it a massacre? Whatever. But violence is a contested category. By which I mean, what counts as violence, what counts as justice, depends on the opinion of those who are involved in it and who are watching it. And I think what's, what's really important to this act is this idea that it is not, perhaps as far as we can tell, explicitly framed as violence as a massacre at the time. It's seen as justice because of the way that meaning is controlled um, by framing it within a certain day, by kind of locating it within a saint's day that imbues meaning to an act in which you don't want too much free independent interpretation going on. You want to settle down on what it could be read as. Now, the fact that, as we know from that Oxford Charter, the, the Danes kind of run away from the city and go into this church, and then the church has to be burnt down, that's kind of a sign that things are going wrong on the day as well. That's definitely not part of the plan. You don't <laughs> you don't arrange this in such a way that you want kind of a you want to frame it as religiously sound, but you also end up burning down the church. Um, so it's clear that the message is going awry at the time. Certainly, Ethelred's reign, I think, does take something of a downward curve. After this, there is a there is a palace revolution in year 1005 where they sort of clear out loads of people in a coup, which is a sign that this kind of conspiracy at court, you know, is is ramping up in heat. And certainly by the year 1014, Athelred is driven out of the kingdom, and the Danes take over. Um, the Danish king Swain dies. They bring Athelred back. <laughs> Say sorry. We'll take you back, have another go. Um, but then he dies in 1016. And with Canute, you get the sort of the, the kind of the Danish conquest of the kingdom. So, in fact, in the longer term, I suppose you could say that perhaps the idea of this is to control the meaning in such a way that it doesn't look like violence, doesn't look like a massacre. Things are going wrong on a day that makes that look perhaps kind of problematic. Ethelred's reign goes downhill enough that perhaps this, this is being read and remembered in such a way that it's kind of held up against him. And that certainly comes to the fore once we get to the late 11th, 12th century, because people are still talking about this. They're still bringing it up. And they are not saying, um, 
well, actually, it was justice, if you think about it. Uh, they are saying that this is a massacre, that this is as horrible as possible. Um, so I suppose what we're looking at here is, I suppose, a, a failed attempt to control a narrative, to control a message, which, um, I mean, rightfully, given that this is a sort of a massacre and act of genocide, in the long term, goes wrong. This is exceptional in what they are doing, that we just don't see things like this in this period, that they have to be careful with how they frame this because it can potentially go very wrong and be perceived for what it is. And certainly long-term evidence suggests that that is the case. It's interesting that this, this cannot be buried. You can't have, again, you can't do something like this in secret in this period. So it has to be made public, whatever happens, to be legitimate. What's interesting is it, it isn't then made legitimate and sort of fades into the sort of the background of time. A hundred years later, this is still a kind of a scar on public memory. Uh, and really, it's from there, at least, that this kind of very negative image of Ethelred becomes kind of set in stone. That was Benjamin Savile. His article, Remembering St. Bricticus, Conspiracy, Violence and Liturgical Time in the Danish Massacre of 1002, is published by the Journal of Ecclesiastical History and is available now via open access. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when Michael Goodman will be delving into the history of espionage.